Okay guys, let's get started. Hope you guys recovered from the test. Should have been okay. Um, at least my portion of it. <laughs> uh, so today we'll continue talking about um, the cytoskeleton of the cells. Okay. We touched upon it, you know, for uh, mitosis and the cell cycle um, in terms of the microtubules, but uh, we'll talk specifically about actin today, okay? And actin is one of those microfilaments uh, in the cells that provide not only structure, but also some types of function for the cells. And as I was preparing for this lecture, uh, I realized Historically, it's just been talking about, um, you know, actin and tubulin, and it was sort of boring, right, without the context of any, you know, in vivo or cellular process. So what I decided to do um, is talk just about actin and how it functions in a cell. And the next lecture, we'll talk about tubulin and microtubules, how they form microtubules, how it's involved in um, chromosome segregation and other processes. Okay. Um, and as I mentioned, uh, the, these filamentous structures, uh, such as actin and microtubules, um, are used in many different contexts um, for the cell. And at the top portion here, um, we can see uh, they're helping the cell, uh, they're giving the cell support and structure to form these epithelial type cells. Um, they can make specialized structures like these microvilli, and these are sort of the intestinal brush border cells that um, are found in the intent small intestine and help you uh, absorb nutrients. So the microvilli uh, promotes expansion of the membrane, so there's a lot more membrane so that um, it can be used for liquid or solute absorption. Right. And at the base of the cell, you can see in red, again, I think these are the actin filaments. Uh, they help the cell form its cuboidal structure um, and some support. So the cell isn't just a big blob of membrane floating around. So that's one thing. Um, things like filamentous actin can be used for. Uh, the other thing we'll talk about is how uh, filamentous actin um, can be used to promote cell migration. Um, and I'll put it into the context of, say, wound healing, right? When you get a cut, um, it's not that your cut um, all of a sudden uh, heals, it's because skin cells at the, at the edge of the cut actually migrate towards each other and seals the, the wound, okay? And we'll touch upon that as well. So what are the major types of cytoskeletal elements in the cell? Um, they're really a couple of types, and we'll simplify it down to three. Um, there's the, there's some microfilaments composed of actin monomers, uh, which will make these filaments of actin. Um, there's the microtubules composed of tubulin, which we'll talk about in the next lecture. And then there's the intermediate filaments, um, which we won't talk about, but just know that they do exist. Um, and how are these cytoskeletal elements regulated? Um, they have to receive a cue, and a lot of the times it's cues from the extracellular space, right? Um, there's the extracellular matrix. You can uh, presumably have signals from the outside of the cell, and through uh, receptors on the cell membrane that converge on signal transduction pathways, the cell knows how to reform the cytoskeleton and change its shape, or say, in terms of cell migration, where, in which direction the cell wants to migrate towards. And a lot of this will be covered by Dr. Schwander, um, the 
lecture, couple lectures after me. Okay. And these processes are well coordinated. Um, and as, as I mentioned, it provides some structure uh, in terms of cell migration. We'll talk about uh, how the cell coordinates formation of these branch actin filaments at the leading edge of the cell that promotes cell migration. Um, things like cytokinesis and endocytosis, we've talked about briefly before. Um, and these also use uh, microtubules and actin um, to accomplish their task. Right? In terms of the contractile ring, uh, we know uh, there are cytoskeletal elements right in between the cell that pinches the cells off uh, to form two daughter cells. And in terms of endocytosis, we know that once the vesicle forms, the coated vesicle forms, it has to be transported, right? And there are these microtubule superhighways, if you will, that transport the vesicle to the appropriate place. They, they don't just float in the cytosol to the right place. So we'll start with actin. Um, and these are really the building blocks for the microfilaments. So there are three different classes or groups of actin. There's the alpha, beta, and gamma actin. They're actually very similar. Um, I think they're over 93% identical. Um, so you would wonder, you know, why have so many different actins that look so similar? Um, Presumably, they might be able to compensate for each other. Uh, but I'll give you an example later on that they're not, even though they are almost identical, um, they potentially have different functions. Okay? And in the vertebrates, like humans, um, they're actually six isoforms. Um, four specific for muscles. So in terms of muscle contraction, um, you will need uh, active filaments. And two are in non-muscle cells. So here's the crystal structure of actin. Um, it's a globular pro protein, so with two globular domains. Um, and in between, there's an ATP binding domain. Right? And this ATP um, binding domain is essential for uh, stabilization of the monomeric actin structure. And the other thing is, uh, formation of active filaments is dependent on a certain concentration of magnesium. So if you have a bunch of monomeric actin in solution, um, without magnesium, they won't form an active filament. Once you add in the magnesium, they'll start forming the active filaments. And these, when the active filaments form, they sort of look like... Um, two intertwined helical um, structures. You can see one of the filaments here um, in asterisks as it winds, intertwines with the other one. And each repeat of this um, helical structure is 36 nanometers. And this might be important when we talk about the myosins, the motor proteins that walk along these active filaments. Again, you can look at the EM pictures and really think of it just in terms of you know two uh, helical filaments that are wound around each other um, that are th with repeats that are 36 nanometers um, in length. There is a polarity to these actin filaments. Um, so, um, historically, it's been defined um, by labeling with a fragment of myosin. Okay, so we have to jump ahead a little. So myosins are motor proteins that normally walk along um, the actin filament. In this case, what they've done is they've, um, they took a fragment of of the myosin, um, the myosin head, and use that to label that the filament is active. Okay. So it's just a 
a technique they use so that they can visualize um, the actin filament. And when they did that, they saw things that looked like arrowheads. Okay? So if you think of them as arrowheads, um, there's a pointed end and a barbed end. The pointed end is called the minus end, and the barbed end is called the plus end. Okay? So there is a polarity um, in these filaments themselves. And that'll be important when we talk about how these uh, how the actin filament actually forms. But first, I just want to make sure you guys understand this. I'm supposed to hide the results. So you'll see that not only Will it be helpful for us to define a polarity um, for these actin filaments? Um, we'll also talk about how the myosin uh, motors and which direction they'll walk along these actin filaments. Okay. How and where these myosins walk along the actin filaments will help define how these myosin motors work. Okay. So I, I'm sure you guys get it. Okay. So how does these actin filaments form? Uh, there are really three steps in terms of actin polymerization uh, in the, when you have ATP and magnesium present. Okay. The first step is nucleation. So you have a bunch of soluble actin monomers. Um, what you need is sort of a seed, right? You need a couple of actins um, to start forming a nucleus of sorts, where it serves as a landing platform for all the other actin monomers to bind and elongate, which is the second step. And once it starts elongating, um, it reaches a steady state uh, stage where everything is in equilibrium. And that's the state um, where, where most of the studies we'll talk about occur. Um, for, for the most part, we talk about um, acting filaments at the steady state. So what we're seeing here, um, is fluorescently labeled active monomers, or G-active. Um, and the video is looped. Um, so you have active monomers shown as specs initially. And as you add in um, ATP and magnesium, you can see these, uh, these active molecules um, add on to the filament and grow. Right? And that's the process we'll talk about in the next several slides. Um, so we talked about nucleation, right? So you need a couple of these active monomers um, to come together to form a nucleus. It rapidly elongates from both ends. And when it reaches steady state, um, it can either stay at that same length or continue growing or it could uh, reduce the length of the filament. But the, at steady state, which is what we're talking about now, uh, there's a specific concentration of actin uh, that is required in order for the filaments to keep growing. And this is known as the critical concentration. So it doesn't, as you add more and more monomers, nothing happens to actin. Um, to the length of the actin filament until you hit this critical concentration. Once you go above the critical concentration, um, these actin filaments can start growing, right? So it, it is actually, at least at the molecular level, um, quite a complicated process. It's not that actin uh, filaments only grow on one end. Uh, 
but that's the way we can think about it at steady state. What happens is that more of the actin filaments are added at the plus end of, of the filament at steady state, and less of it is um, less of it comes off or dissociates compared to the minus end, where you can see um, the amount of active monomers added to the minus end is much less. It's almost tenfold less, right? So to make things a little simpler, we always think of it it's at steady state as having um, active monomers uh, added to the plus end and active monomers leaving at the minus end. And this process <coughs> is called treadmilling, and we'll get to that. As you can see, these blue actin, blue actin monomers marked here, as more and more actin um, is added to the plus end, it pushes the actin um, monomers towards the minus end as it leaves. And active treadmilling uh, will be essential as you form some of these structures and maintain the structures um, in the cells. Although active treadmilling can occur by itself, um, everything in the cell is enzyme catalyzed. So there are proteins that would promote active treadmilling. Right? So what are these proteins? Um, so one, um, I guess we can simplify it into three different proteins that can promote active treadmilling. One is, the, is cofilin. Um, so <coughs> cofilin normally binds um, to the minus end of the actin filament when actin has hydrolyzed ATP and is an ADP bound state. Um, it binds there, it takes out the actin, ADP, uh, actin bound ADP to promote depolymerization of the actin filament. Okay, so it speeds that process up. At the other end, you have another enzyme, profilin, um, that ensures there's a lot of um, ATP bound actin at the plus end. So actin monomers can always be added in at the plus end. There's excess of it around. And finally, um, there's thymosin beta 4 which sort of sequesters a lot of the ATP-bound actin in a pool. So whenever the cell needs um, actin, ATP-bound actin, um, it essentially releases and has a pool of these um, ATP-bound actin for the cell. And that's, that's really all I want you to get out of the treadmilling thing. So how can you regulate the treadmill? So again, there are proteins or enzymes uh, that can bind to the different ends of the active filament. And these are, some of these are the capping proteins, right? So if you put a cap at the plus end, ATP bound actin can no longer be added to the plus end, right? So nothing happens at that end. But at the minus end, um, at steady state, active monomers can continue to leave. What happens is that your filament shrinks, right? And there are other proteins like tropomodulin that binds to the minus end to prevent active monomers from leaving. So at the plus end, the active monomers keep getting added on and the filament grows. So just by using capping proteins, um, proteins that promote 
depolymerization or ensure the supply and excess supply of ATP bound actin, we can regulate uh, the process of uh, actin filamentation. So that's sort of at steady state, right? Growing the actin filaments. And we'll take a step back and ask, okay, there's also the nucleation event. So how does it normally nucleate and um, form sort of a landing platform to start the elongation process before it reaches steady state? And this, the nucleation process is um, catalyzed by these nucleating promoting factors. And what we're looking at here is um, a protein called formin. Uh, formin is, it's exactly, well, it, in the cartoon version, you can see it's sort of like two C-shaped structures um, where each C-shaped structure can uh, harvest or grab a monomeric actin and keep adding it up as it steps up, right? So it keeps stepping up, gets an actin, and keeps putting it on top. So what it does, um, it really just um, increases uh, the concentration of ATP bound actin at a specific site. And it helps nucleate or form um, a small actin, um, a couple actins that are bound together. So now you have all the proteins you need, uh, essentially to to nucleate, right? To elongate, to make filaments, to regulate trend milling, all that. How can you use it? Um, to make uh, a, a cytoskeletal structure. And as I mentioned before, um, a lot of the cues that form the cytoskeleton um, is from the extracellular portion of the cell, right? The cell receives extracellular cues um, and receives the signal. The signal is detected at the membrane by different receptors. Um, and that causes a change in the cytoskeleton. <laughs> so here, we have one case um, where it's a rho GTPase, um, and Dr. Schwander will probably touch upon this. Um, all you need to know at this point is that the rho GTPase can um, sense extracellular cues. And normally, uh, formin uh, is in an inactive, uh, inactive state. So it has these two domains that are required for active nucleation. It also has a row binding domain. And in the absence of the row, it is inactive. Once it binds to row, um, there's a conformational change that exposes the FH1 and FH2 domains. So once these domains are exposed, um, the formins can actually start functioning as they do, nucleates the, the active monomers and start making um, a chain of active filaments. Um, other things like profilin can provide the active uh, ATP bound active to form it. And in some ways, the simplified process can be used to form the cytoskeletal structures, such as the microvilli, um, in these uh, brush border epithelial cells in the small intestine. Okay. So you have. Um, lots and lots of actin filaments in these microvilli. So not only is it in these um, brush border cells from the intestine, 
We'll also talk about how it affects We'll also talk about how it affects um, the structure and function in uh, other epithelial cell types, like the hair cell. fundamental protein required by almost all cells, what does it have to do with anything with disease? So it was a little surprising, at least to me, um, when they found that a mutation in gamma actin uh, causes deafness, right? And how does it cause deafness? Um, so again, we'll take a brief detour into the auditory system. Um, and in the inner ear, we have the snail-shaped organ called the cochlea that's responsible for our ability to hear. There are other organs, sensory organs, in the inner ear called the vestibular system um, that are involved in our ability to balance and sense acceleration. But the sensory cells that underlie both of these processes are called hair cells. Um, they're called hair cells because they have hair-like protrusions or microvilli um, on the apical surface. It is a misnomer in the field, but they're actually called stereocilia, even though they're really villi, right? They, they have actin filaments. So each of the hair cells have 50 to 100 stereocilia. Um, and if you look into each of these actin, uh, each of these stereocilia, and you take a cross section along the lengths of each of these stereocilia, you can see many, many um, actin filaments. And without going too much into it, um, they're composed of beta actin and gamma actin. So in this report, um, they found that a mutation in gamma actin actually causes deafness. And how did they go about it? Um, they actually found a Turkish family um, where there was an autosomal dominant form of hearing loss, meaning you only need one copy of the mutated gene in order to have hearing loss. Here's the pedigree of the family um, at different generations. So you have six different generations here. Um, the squares represent the males. The circle represents the females. Um, the filled in black squares or circles are the ones that are um, suffering from deafness or hearing loss. And the ones with a slash um, in these squares or circles are people who are deceased. So they could not get any sequence information from them. But they knew that they were deaf at some point. Um, so what they did was they, um, they focused down, uh, I, I won't talk too much about it, uh, into a region of the chromosome, chromosome 17, um, on the Q arm. And in that region, there were six candidate genes that could be causing hearing loss. Okay, and one of them was gamma actin. So they generated PCR sequencing primers that could detect the mutant form and the wild type form. And remember, in autosomal dominant um, 
forms of the hearing loss, you only need one mutated gene, right? And in, and in people, of course, they're, they're, you have two copies of each gene. So here is the mutant PCR product corresponding to the mutant gene. Um, and if you actually look carefully, say this is generation four, um, every single one of the individuals um, that they obtained samples from and amplified by PCR um, who had this mutation were, had some form of hearing loss. And if you actually sequence um, the PCR product, you would see um, at this, so this would be the wild type version. Um, this is a chromatogram, so after you sequence it, you can look at the chromatogram and assign each peak to a specific base pair. Um, and in the mutant allele, uh, you see two peaks at the same position. Presumably one that corresponds to the wild type and one cor corresponding to the mutant form of the uh, gamma actin gene. Right? And this mutation uh, changes the amino acid at that site. Um, so it changes it from a 3D to an isoleucine. So this 3-anine here uh, is highly conserved amongst different uh, actin forms in humans, uh, flies, mice, yeast. So it is highly conserved, and it lands right in an alpha helix. So what does that have to do with anything? So if you look at the crystal structure of uh, the gamma actin, you can see helix 9 here in blue. Um, there's another helix that resides right next to it. And if you change the 3 anine to an isoleucine, as we see in this, these uh, human patients, they think there's a steric hindrance uh, that occurs when this amino acid substitution uh, happens. And this would actually destabilize um, the structure of gamma actin. So that's so that's one way um, you know, how actins can be uh, involved in disease. So we'll move on and talk about how active polymerization can be used uh, in terms of cell migration and wound healing. And again, we're just looking at um, a GFP tag actin monomer. Uh, you can see there are pools of um, actin inside the cell, but there are also lots of branched um, and branched or filament-looking actin at the leading edge of the cell um, that's uh, helping the cell migrate in the direction that it wants to. Um, okay. So something is going on at that leading edge. Um, and we think it correlates to uh, actin polymerization at that leading edge. So I'll break down uh, how cell migration occurs. It's actually, I mean, we'll break it down in terms of um, adhesion of the cell, extension of uh, the structure called the lamella odia at the leading edge, um, and then adhesion again at this lamella podia. Right? So normally a cell would be attached to it, the extracellular surface. Um, uh, in the lab, it'd just be on a dish, so that would be the surface it's attached to. Um, in vivo, it could be other cell types. Um, and as you, if the cell, if the cell receives an extracellular cue that tells it to move in that direction, um, active polymerization will occur at the lamellopodia. That would extend the cell membrane out 
And as the cell membrane extends out, they'll form a new adhesion site here, right? And it'll de-adhere, if you will, uh, from the old site at the end and drag the entire cell along with it uh, to the new direction that it's heading. So what is the actin structure at the leading edge, at the uh, lamellapodia? So here you see, I think, a keratinocyte or a skin cell that's migrating along in a dish. Um, you can see um, the edge, so where it's leading the migration. What they did is that they lysed the cell, fixed it, and they'll look at it by electron microscopy to look at a very, de at a very detailed level um, what the actin structures look like at the leading edge. Um, we know it's composed mainly of actin, um, but it looks like a mesh, right? It's a dense mesh of stuff. Um, and it's really hard to figure out until you pick out a couple of spots um, at this edge and look even more closely. So when you do that and you start outlining um, some of the active structures that are present, um, you start seeing branch structures um, at the edge, um, at the leading edge where the lamellopodia forms. Right? And these structures are sort of Y-type structures. And again, um, that's just depicted here. Uh, there is a polarity to it. Um, and they are Y-type structures at that lamellopodial edge. How is this structure formed? Um, it's catalyzed by uh, the actin-related proteins 2 and 3. So ARP23, as we usually call it. Uh, it promotes nucleation and assembly of these act branched actin structures. So it sort of looks like proteins, uh, uh, I mean actin. Um, and with, along with uh, nucleation promoting factor, uh, which we'll talk about um, in the next slide, um, ARP23 can start, it binds to the middle of an actin filament and starts adding another actin filament, or nucleates first, and starts extending that filament out at a 70 degree angle. Okay. So how is it regulated and how does it work? Um, so, for example, you have this um, WASP protein that it takes several domains. Uh, I, these acronyms, uh, it, it's really historical um, more than anything. Uh, so I'm just writing it out for you guys. It's just WASP homology 2, WH2. Um, it has, also has a connector domain and an acidic domain. So it's called the WCA domain. Right? Um, unfortunately, there's no way around it. <laughs> um, you have a regulatory binding domain here. And uh, in this case, you have another GTPase, CDC42, that senses the extracellular cues. When it binds to this regulatory domain, uh, this WCA domain is exposed. And it could start nucleation and extension of another active filament um, to form this Y-shaped branch uh, actin filament structure in the middle of um, a pre-existing actin filament. So that's how the branch structure occurs at the leading edge in the lamellar right? So we just talked about you have a Q. Um, CDC42 senses it. You have ARP23 and WASP. Um, 
that forms the branch structures at the lamellipodia and extends the cell membrane out. Right? So the cell essentially is reaching out. The lamellipodia then adheres uh, to the extracellular surface and then it, it will de-adhere um, at the end of the of the cell so that it can move the entire cell body across. So how do these adhesions work? Um, they're mediated through integrins, um, which couple sort of the cytoskeleton with the extracellular matrix here. So they, it's a highly coordinated process, right? Because you want um, the integrins to adhere at the lamellipodium, but then de-adhere um, at the end of the cell so that it can move forward. And uh, I think Dr. Schwander will be talking a lot about the extracellular matrix and integrins and how that occurs. But um, these integrins are essential uh, to form these focal adhesion sites where the cell sticks to the extracellular surface. So again, uh, in terms of cell migration, I would just want to put it in a context uh, where it is um, biologically significant, if you will. And I think the wound healing uh, assay here sort of illustrates that. So this is um, in vitro, uh, but we think it happens in vivo as well. Um, we're culturing a, a confluent plane of cells. So um, the dish is filled with cells. And what you do is you just use a pipette or something and scrape the cells um, and scratch it to damage the cells. The cells somehow receive a cue that there is damage at this edge and they start migrating um, together to fill in that, um, this damaged edge our scratch here. And this occurs fairly quickly um, in most cases. And I'll just give you a sense. You scratch it, you see the cells migrate over, and these are keratinocytes <coughs> cells. Um, so it seals the wound, if you will, um, quickly. After it seals the wound, it just, the cells aren't static per se. They keep moving, but they don't overgrow or they don't really do anything else. Okay. So again, scratch, migration. Um, once the cell contact occurs, uh, there's probably some signal that tells them uh, that's it, you don't have to keep growing anymore. Okay, so now we can continue with um, talking about myosins. Um, these are the proteins that walk along the active filaments. So we'll focus on uh, a couple of myosins that are well studied. Uh, here it's a muscle type 2 myosin. Uh, in the muscle type 2 uh, myosins, um, they form a complex. Um, so here you can see the muscle, uh, the type two myosins bundled together. Um, if you take one of these and look at it individually, you can see that they have um, a so-called head domain, um, a head, a neck domain, and a tail domain. The tail domain and muscle uh, type two myosins um, stick together. Okay. Um, and form the structure. And to simplify things, um, what we usually do is we study fragments of the myosin. Okay? And the head domain is of particular interest because it's the active binding site. Right? It also contains an, um, an ATP binding uh, hydrolysis domain. Okay? So that's how the myosin is going to couple the hydrolysis of ATP to walking along the actin filament. So using different 
um, proteases, we can cut um, this type 2 myosin into different fragments. Um, we can cut it into a fragment that contains two heads along with a neck domain, or we can cut it into just a single head, um, which is called S1. Uh, S1, I think it's just subfragment one. S2 is a subfragment two, but since it doesn't contain the motor domain or the ATPase domain, um, it's not as well studied. So if we take S1, we can look at uh, how the biases are walking along the actin filaments using this uh, motility assay. So in this assay, you purify the S1 fragment of myosin, which is a single-headed myosin. You can immobilize it on a surface, and you can add in these active filaments. Right? So in this panel here, say for the first actin filament, you can see how um, as the myosins are walking along the actin filament, it pushes the filament um, down and towards the right corner of the picture here. Okay? And that's because the actin literally is dragging the uh, actin filaments across the field of view. So there are many myosin genes. Um, we'll, we'll mainly talk about um, three classes of these genes. Um, they all differ um, in terms of their regulatory domains and um, how they walk along actin filaments. Um, and a lot of the uh, unconventional myosins, myosins that don't seem to fit together in any class, um, they're involved in causing deafness and blindness, um, what we call Usher syndrome. And some of these, <coughs> excuse me, are myosin 7A, myosin 6, and myosin 15. And as I was mentioning before, um, how the myosin, uh, how many uh, head domains the myosin has, um, its regulatory element, um, and how it walks along the active filaments sort of determines what its function is. Um, we have a term called step size, which is what is the distance that the myosin walks along the active filaments. Um, and that differs in different types of uh, classes of myosin. Uh, in the class one, it's just a single-headed myosin. Uh, it has a tail domain that probably associates with the membrane, and it's involved in things like endocytosis. Okay? So that makes sense. Um, type two muscle myosins, again, the tail domain, it, uh, binds together to form this bundle of myosins. And as it walks along these active filaments, um, it helps the muscle contract. And the class five myosin, um, the t it has two heads and the tail domain uh, binds to vesicles. So we think of it as transporting um, different vesicles to different places. So it, it's involved in organelle transport. So all these myosins walk towards the plus end of the active filaments. There's only one myosin, myosin six, um, that walks towards the minus end. And we'll talk about how it does that after we figure out how the myosin walks along active filaments. It's a series of, process, um, of steps that couples ATP hydrolysis um, to conformational changes in the uh, myosin itself, which then um, becomes uh, a step along the actin filament. Okay? So normally the, actin, the myosin head would bind tightly to an actin monomer along a filament. Um, 
When it binds to ATP, um, it sort of gets released. Um, and as it starts hydrolyzing the ATP, um, there's a conformational change that um, here in the, in the neck or converter region uh, where it's poised in a cock state, and as, so once um, ATP hydrolysis occurs um, and it gets into this cock state, it binds again um, to the active monomer, and when it releases the phosphate group, um, another conformational change occurs, and this is called the power stroke, uh, which sort of straightens out um, this neck or converter region here in the myosin. Um, and that generates the force required for the myosin head to push back off the active filament. And the myosin is bound until uh, another ATP um, replaces the ADP. And it gets released, and it starts the entire cycle again. <coughs> what, so through these conformational changes, um, what you would deduce is that there is a conformational change um, to get the myosin in the cock state, but um, the converter and the tail region sort of um, acts like a lever. So the longer the lever is, um, the more distance it could travel, right? So the faster it could move, the longer steps, the larger step size it could have. Um, during the power stroke. So if you have a very um, long region here at the neck, um, you can potentially uh, visualize how it's going to really push um, the actin filament much further. And you can test this by generating um, actin filaments with different neck lengths. So this is the same um, I say active, myosin heads. Um, so here it's the same myosin head, but we've introduced in um, different lengths of the neck, right? And the longer the neck region is, um, sort of the longer the lever is. So it pushes fat, uh, the step size would be um, larger, if you will. Um, and it could actually walk faster along the active filament. <laughs> okay. So we know most of the biases walk along um, the active filament towards the plus end. Um, but we, if we want to figure out what the individual step size of a single Myosin motor is, um, we, we usually use some more advanced optical techniques. Um, and in this case, it's called an optical tweezer setup, um, where you form your actin filament, uh, the ends are bound to beads that are then held in place um, by two infrared lasers. Um, I, I guess I won't go into this, but photons have no mass, yet they have momentum. Don't ask me why. Um, so as the moment, um, so, so as the force is generated here um, and refracts off the bead, it actually holds the bead in place. So it traps it in place. And that's how you tether the actin filaments at both ends. Right? You can then add in uh, a myosin bound to a, a yet another bead, uh, and then visualize uh, how far or how much this bead is moving. Okay. So here, if you look at exactly the setup that we talked about, 
This is myosin 5. A sing, uh, this is just a single-headed fragment of myosin 5. Um, you can see that uh, if you look at a single myosin, um, it's taking 36 nanometer steps along the actin film. And if you remember, um, each repeat, if you think of the actin, actin filament as intertwined strands, each helical repeat is 36 nanometers. Right? Uh, so there's also a term called the duty ratio, uh, which I'll just touch upon. That essentially, it's how long the myosin stays on the actin. Okay. Um, so here, um, it, it's just say 70% of the time uh, the myosin is bound to the actin before it gets released and then it again binds quickly. So at steady state, approximately 70% of the myosins are bound uh, to the actin filaments. But myosin 5 doesn't have a single myosin head, right? It, it's actually a two-headed myosin. Um, so when you have a two-headed myosin, um, how does it walk, right? Um, and this is sort of a mechanistic thing where you can think of the two-headed myosin as you know, really walking hand over hand. Um, so taking one step forward, the other step forward. <coughs> or this is the uh, inchworm model where you're really dragging one head of the myosin uh, along, right? You're just using one leg, you move forward, and you're dragging the other leg along. Okay? And when they looked at um, how uh, the myosin walks along the actin filaments, it's taking 72 nanometer steps. So it's more like the hand-over-hand -hand mechanism where you're using each myosin head and stepping over. And a lot of this uh, speaks to how um, the cell uses uh, the myosin for its different functions. Um, it's not clear, at least to me, uh, why you need so many mycins. Potentially, if you wanted to build a cell, you could just make one mycin and be done with it. Um, but there are things we don't understand as to why you know, there are so many different mycins and why they have so many step sizes, different step sizes, um, and different domains. So. As I was telling you before, all the myosins walk towards the plus end of the active filament, except for myosin 6. So how does that work? So myosin 6, at least at the amino acid level, looks very much like all the other myosins, except for a couple different things. There are small insertions in the uh, motor domain, um, and a larger insertion um, as well. Okay. And it's, these insertions, as we'll see, that changes the direction of the myosin. Um, we won't talk about the small insertions, um, but the large insertions contain uh, a so-called IQ protein um, that helps calmodulin, a calcium binding protein, uh, to attach to that domain. It also extends the length of this converter region or neck region And if you look at the crystal structure, what I'd like you to appreciate is that here's the head domain in blue. Uh, it's blue and gray. And it looks very similar. Myosin 6 looks very similar to myosin 5, at least in the myosin, um, the motor domain, right? It's still quite similar as you approach the neck region. Um, but here's when, when the insertion of alters things. So the purple here is an insertion site um, along with the IQ motif. And there's a structural change that literally turns the lever, if you will, 
in the opposite direction as the lever for the conventional myosins. So the levers are now pointed in different directions. So for myosin 5, it usually walks towards the plus end of the active filaments. And since there's a rotation in the lever, myosin 6 now walks towards the minus end. So a simple insertion um, that changes the orientation of the lever can change the entire um, how and which polarity, you can change the polarity of the myosin and how it walks on the active. So again, this is just to reinforce what we've learned. Um, we know there's a polarity to the actin. Um, we know the myosin motors uh, hydrolyze ATP um, and converts that into um, a power stroke that allows them to walk along the active filaments. Most of the myosins uh, walk towards the plus end of the active filaments, uh, whereas myosin 6 walks towards the minus end just because of a small structural insert that changes the orientation of the lever arm, right? So, uh, so we're coming to an end here, but um, I want to touch on the unconventional myosins and how they cause deafness, right? So as I mentioned before, some of these unconventional myosins, um, like myosin 6, myosin 7 and 8, myosin 15, um, cause um, sensory neural hearing loss. Um, there's lots and lots of um, these myosin proteins, as well as actin proteins, uh, that causes deafness. Um, the list extends longer than this. Um, not only are myosins and actin uh, mutations in myosin and actin uh, do they cause deafness. A lot of the actin binding proteins, uh, myosin associated proteins also cause deafness. Um, and a lot of it has been um, sort of, uh, we know it through mouse genetics. Um, and how do we know? It's a very simple behavioral readout. Okay? On the top there is a wild-type mouse, and the, on the bottom, uh, these mice circle. Okay? They circle because there's a vestibular defect. They can't tell, um, they can't sort of tell um, you know, left from right, so they only go in one direction. They're trying to walk forward, but they're actually circling. Okay? So it, it's, uh, and there are other things that we, we can see. Uh, a lot of them have been called hyperactive. You know, they bob their heads, um, hence some of the names. They're called headbanger, et cetera, et cetera. That's historically how they found them until recently when, we, when sequencing became much more powerful. We, know, we now know a lot of the genes that causes um, these vestibular and auditory def uh, defects. So there are at least five or six different biases uh, in these sensory hair cells, right? And again, the hair cells are the cells that um, detect sound or gravity um, in the inner ear. Um, and surprisingly, you'd think, you know, the myosins would walk towards the plus end, at least you know, uh, most of the myosins, except for myosin 6, right? Um, and in the stereocilia, uh, these microvilli in the hair cells, the, pl the plus end um, is on top, and the minus end is on the bottom. Right? So you would assume that all the myosins would walk towards the plus end. Um, but when you look at the localization of these myosin molecules, um, myosin 15 is at the tips. OK, fine. So that makes sense. Um, maybe it's involved in. You know, Active treadmilling or formation of these active filaments to form these stereocilia, if you will. Um, but then there are other myosins um, 
like myosin 3, uh, myosin 1C, myosin 7A, that seem to be in different regions of the stereocilia. We don't know why, but one of the explanations is that they, there could be binding proteins or binding partners to these myosins that localize them to that distinct region of the stereocilia. Um, and that's where they function. And myosin 6, at steady state, of course, would walk towards the minus end and be found at the lower ends of the stereocilia. So we'll talk about myosin 15A, one of these unconventional myosins. Um, and it was found um, as a mutant animal, mutant mouse. Um, they, they weren't sure uh, why the mouse was you know, behaving erratically. Um, but when they looked at the hair cells in the inner ear, they found that in the wild type, um, they have uh, the stereocilia in the hair cells um, are much longer than the ones in the mutants, right? So the mutant myosin 7 animal um, have very short stereocilia. Um, when you overexpress myosin 7 uh, myosin 15, um, you can see that they localize to the tips of the stereocilia um, at the plus end of the active filaments. And if you really overexpress it, um, you can make the stereocilia a little longer. Okay. So we think that mycin 15 is involved in, um, make, in lengthening uh, the actin filaments within the stereocilia. And why does a loss of mycin 15 cause deafness? Um, one, right, they make these short stereociliary bundles. Okay. So if you remember, at least for hair cells, you have to push these hair bundles or deflect them in order to depolarize the cell to release neurotransmitters to the associated nerve. And normally in vivo, it's this membrane that sits atop, on top of these microvilli, the stereocilia, that pushes and deflects the hair bundle. Um, if these stereocilia are too short, such as the ones in the myosin 15 mutants, um, the hair bundles can't be deflected. And hence, essentially, the hair cells are not functional. So they can't release the neurotransmitters to the, to the associated nerve. The mouse can't hear. They can't sense gravity. They can't sense le left or right. So they're hyperactive. They might circle. Um, they have all these behavioral phenotypes. Okay. So I'll end here. Um, so next week, We'll talk about microtubules and why they're important. Okay.